0: <clears throat> and this is not a home group, so there's not going to be a lot of dialogue, but I will pray for you after service if you need prayer. Right. If, uh, if you've never been a part of a home group, or home groups kind of make you nervous because you, it's not this setting where you can hide, um, and you're, you know, you're an introvert, not an extrovert, because I think that oftentimes small intimate settings can be more intimidating to an introvert. Uh, I know, because I'm married to one, And, uh, but I think that whenever we've been a part of home groups that are healthy and stuff, it's been a blessing to both of us for very different reasons. And uh, so I would encourage you to try the three months and, uh, if it's too much, then you can bail out and then we'll put you in another one. Okay. So, all right. Okay. Well, uh, just as some, well, I got to get my stuff on the screen, but you all have your Bibles anyway, don't you? Right? Okay. Who doesn't? Let's pray for Walker. (laughs) Not because he doesn't have his Bible. All right, so we have uh, moved beyond the parable of the sower, and we're moving toward what is called the kingdom parables. Uh, They're called the kingdom parables because they begin with the statement, the kingdom of heaven is like. And I just wanted to remind us all about the nature of parables, these short stories. Uh, They are to illustrate uh, a simple and brief truth. Uh, Here, the parables illustrate the influence of the kingdom of heaven uh, that they will have on the earth because of the gospel. And uh, thank you, Mr. Boy. That's a gift Bible. You can have that. If you want, you can leave it at that seat for next Sunday. Yeah. Okay. Now, uh, perhaps you've noticed for yourself, or you've been in discussion with other people about the parables, or you've read commentaries about them, and you've found that people have different views or ways of interpreting the parables, and usually it's because of their eschatology. Now, that's a big word that... Uh, means the study of the end times, okay? And it is, it's people's own eschatology because, of course, there's a spectrum out there and uh, people glob on to different things and then they take that baggage to the parables and then they try to unpack the parables according to their eschatology. And uh, I think that's a terrible way to interpret these parables, because very strange things can come out of them. Uh, So using your understanding of the end times to explain what Jesus explains, I think is kind of weird, okay? Uh, If Jesus explains them for us, what do you think the explanation is? Was there a unified voice in that? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Parables um, are not to... It's just easy to make them say way more than they say. Okay? And people do that with illustrations all the time. Uh, now, you've heard it, illustrations break down, right? Well, even Jesus' illustrations break down if you torture them too much. And so we want to just grab onto the gist of what is being uh, relayed through it. And uh, so, yeah, my objective this morning is not to critique or promote any view of eschatology. Uh, Just, I want to cover the simple thing that was intended by the parable itself. And uh, uh, to be safe, we're going to rely heavily on Jesus' interpretation. Okay, is that fair? Uh, Which is simple to the point, all that parables are meant to do. Now, late last night, uh, for some reason I can't sleep before Sundays, but I thought I would... Uh, read something light, like uh, D.A. Carson's Greek exegesis of the parables. And uh, in his typical, extremely thorough treatment of all the pertinent facts, he rendered their parables down to their simplicity. And I figured, Mr. Carson, with all of your PhDs, I could have saved you all the time in ink, uh, but it's been published already, so it's too late. So, well, like last week, um, I'm going to read through uh, the the parables, all of them, uh, the rest of them, and then provide some basic explanation, Uh, but we're going to spend most of our time uh, in the parables that Jesus explains, okay, the ones that he explains. Now, it's his explanation of some of them that helps us uh, understand the other ones, okay? So, uh, we'll do that. Why don't you stand uh, for the reading of God's word? Matthew 13, verse 24 through 52. Another parable he put forth to them. Now remember, them is the multitude, saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and then went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, Then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares or weeds? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at that time, or at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Another parable he put forth to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches." Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. All things Jesus spoke to the multitude in parables, and without a parable he did not speak to them, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, And his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the... He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore... As the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The son of man will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun into the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like "...treasure hidden in a field which a man found and hid, and for joy over it he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field." Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which when it was full they drew it to shore." And they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Jesus said to them, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he said to them, Therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder who brings out of his treasures things new and old. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your teaching, much of it sobering, but Lord, you are talking to those who have ears, and we pray that, uh, that we would be among them this morning, and that like the disciples, we can say, yes, Lord, we understand what is spoken to us, and that it would put an urgency in us, knowing that the end of the age is upon us, and the only way to Transfer those from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light is the gospel of Christ. So teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Right. Go ahead and be seated. So, six parables uh, in this uh, rather large section, but only two of them are given interpretations the wheat and the tares, and then the parable of the drag net. The drag net. Also, uh, as you saw in the middle of the section, or a third of the way into it, uh, verse 34 through 35, Matthew explains again that Jesus taught in parables to fulfill prophecy. This one from Psalm 78, verse 2, by the prophet Asaph. Uh, he is the psalmist, but in 2 Chronicles 29 30, he is called a seer, and a seer was the ancient term for prophet. Uh, We were already told in Matthew 10, uh, or or, sorry, 13, 10 through 17, that Jesus was teaching in parables to the people uh, because the multitudes themselves did not have ears to hear. And he was throwing those parables out there so that some would seek like his disciples did. As Jesus instructed earlier in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, ask and it will be given to you. Seek. Seek. And you will find, knock, and the door will be opened to you. Matthew 7 7. So, Jesus, as we said last week, was teaching in parables to the multitude so that he could draw out of the crowd those that have ears to hear. And those who do will always seek, they'll always ask, they'll always knock. And when they do, especially in the context of the parables, uh, they will find Christ and they'll find him as the king. Amen? Yeah. Now, this morning, I'm going to do something I've never done before. Uh, We're going to begin with the interpretation of the parable of the wheat and the tares from verse 36 through 43. And then we're going to go back and look at the parable of the mustard seed and the leaven in verse 31 through 33. And then we're going to jump all the way forward to the parable of the hidden treasure, the pearl of great price and the dragnet and then Jesus' conclusion in verse 44 through 52. Uh, It'll be easy to follow along, okay? You got it? Okay. The order of the parables uh, is not that significant. It's the meaning of them. So let's begin with Jesus' interpretation of the wheat and the tares. So then it says, Jesus sent the multitudes away, and he went into his house, or not his house, into the house, and this is part of his technique of drawing out of the multitude those who are seekers, okay? And his disciples, of course, came to him saying, okay, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, he who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one." The enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. So you see clearly, Jesus is—he's giving explanation for the text. So if you're taking notes, you want it simply put: uh, Jesus is the sower, verse 37. The field is the world, verse 38. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, that's us, verse 38. The tares are the sons of the wicked one, verse 38. The devil sowed the tares. It's all very nefarious, isn't it? The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters, they are the angels, verse 39. In verse 38, Jesus said that the field is the world, okay? The world should not be confused with the church or the kingdom, okay? I mean, if the world is the kingdom, we got serious problems when we come to other passages of scripture because John says, do not love anything in the world and do not love the world. He who loves the world is an enemy of God, right? We certainly don't want to confuse the world with the church uh, either because we, we have the same problems, amen? The field is the world. It's that out there. And it's everything that is included in it. As I said before, some people's eschatology will influence this, and they'll come up with the kingdom. They'll come up with the church. But that is not, uh, that's not what Jesus says here. It's the world. Everywhere in Scripture, the world, as it is in this present age, is always, always distinct from the church and the kingdom. Also, in the parable of the sower... The parable of the sword, that's what we looked at last week. The seed was the gospel of the kingdom, okay? The good news that God had sent his son into the world to make a way for salvation. But here in this parable, the good seed represents the sons of the kingdom, the disciples of Jesus who are scattered throughout the world. The tares or weeds are the sons of the wicked one. They too are found out in the world, correct? You've noticed, right? Okay. Okay. And this world is currently whose kingdom, according to especially Paul? Yeah, Satan. This is his kingdom currently. The sons of the kingdom and the sons of the wicked one are to coexist. It doesn't mean that they'll coexist friendly toward each other, uh, though we should be friendly toward them. Uh, But they most certainly are not going to be friendly toward us because Jesus has said they will hate us. Okay? And this will happen until the end of the age when things rapidly begin to change. He says the son of man at the end of the age will send out his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire where there will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. At the end of the age, Christ will return to the earth and the earth will become his kingdom. Revelation 11:15 15 says, Then the seventh angel sounded, and there, was, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. You gotta love that, okay? At the time of his return, he will dispatch his angels. And their mission is to purge his kingdom of every rebel, every unrepentant and wicked, unbelieving person who practices lawlessness. And they will be cast into the furnace of fire, uh, where they will wail and gnash their teeth. Now, I don't want to dedicate our time this morning to uh, the doctrine of of judgment, uh, but I want to just say a few things about it. Who thinks that the doctrine of eternal judgment is kind of a difficult subject? Well, if you don't think it is, you haven't talked to people that struggle with it. Okay, Uh, it's not well received and actually the biblical teaching of it is less well received in the church today so that um, all kinds of different interpretations are being uh, assigned to it and uh, words like eternal are cast out. Uh, Words like conscious are removed, and uh, words like annihilation are inserted uh, that are not found in the scripture. And um, so it can be a very difficult subject, and some of the reasons are is because of people's, uh, their lack of understanding of sin and the holiness of God. And when you study the two together, you realize there's an infinite span between them, okay? Okay. People struggle with this because of their uh, perception of justice. If you noticed in our culture, the ideas of justice are changing rapidly. And so when people have a skewed or diminished sense of justice, and then they come to the scriptures and talk about God's justice, they shout out all kinds of accusations. Uh, I've noticed that in many people, it's difficult because of their personality. Personality, it's amazing how it affects all kinds of things. And I have a personality, as you know. People's circumstances affect the way people embrace judgment. No one wants to face the reality that a loved one, a beloved friend, is in hell because they refused to trust in Jesus before they died. This has been brought to my attention by many people over the years. Are you saying that my grandmother, who was just so kind and whatever, and um, yeah, it's easy to lose friends. I don't expect anyone to happily embrace the doctrine of judgment, okay, but... In speaking with people, I've realized that deep down, there's actually a longing for it because we know nothing else can relieve this world of evil. Nothing can stop it. Okay? Uh, if you've spent much time uh, witnessing to atheists, uh, atheists are a very interesting breed of people. And it, my evaluation of them is that they, they believe in God. They just don't like the way he behaves. Uh, he doesn't behave the way that they think that he should. And so they say, well, I'll just get rid of him, and that'll take care of the problem. Uh, But in speaking with them about the doctrines of hell and things, it's always fascinating because they balk at the doctrine of hell and how unjust it is, and then they complain about the existence of evil in the world and how God is doing nothing about it. Where do I go now, you know? Well, God, you guys, he has two solutions for evil. It's the gospel and it's Gehenna. Gehenna, the final abode of the wicked. His first solution, the gospel. You see, the gospel goes into the world and it redeems the wicked and it transforms them when they repent and they trust in Christ. This transforms the amount of evil in the world, does it not? Changes, we've seen this. I mean, consider the great awakening. With some of the great preachers of times past. Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, Wesley. That's the first solution. Gehenna is the second, the place where God confines the wicked who refuse to repent. Uh, this is where God puts the wicked to purge the world of all evil. That's a solution. So it's interesting. God has two solutions out there. The atheist, on the other hand, only has one answer for evil, and they say, uh, God doesn't exist. Okay. In other words, get rid of God and evil will not exist. If there is no God, there are no such things as moral categories. There's no right and there's no wrong, no good and evil. Well, that is all true, but it's not a plausible answer for an atheist because they don't believe that God exists, and yet they continue to complain about evil as a moral category which haunts our world. So they still have the problem of evil, which means they have a bigger problem called God. And if they don't repent and trust in Christ, they will receive God's latter solution for evil, okay? The psalmist said, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They will have plenty of time to complain in eternity. So, in regard to the whole doctrine of reprobation and judgment and that, um, I have settled the issue for myself, okay? And the only way that I've been able to do this is uh, I've, I think that I've considered, uh, of course, not in thoroughly, but in looking at the moral purity of God in the context of my own moral depravity and the moral depravity of man. Okay. It's by studying both of them, uh, I see how wicked I am, certainly not fully, okay? And I've seen God in his holiness, but it's to an infinite degree, amen? We are so far apart from one another. I've looked carefully, I think, at the you know, eternal nature of God's justice and his mercy. Uh, I think I've studied the gospel of grace a fair bit. And while the thought of eternal judgment, you guys, it pains me. I realize that it is the best solution to the problem of evil where the gospel is not embraced. Okay? For man to reject God's gift that he offered through Christ Jesus who alone can spare them from the eternal misery they deserve is an unforgivable crime, okay? Yeah, God provided everything necessary to save us, sacrificing his own dear son for our salvation. It's tremendous. So he holds out both. And when Jesus comes on the scene preaching in the footsteps of John the Apostle, and when Peter preaches his first sermon, it's repent unto salvation or else. That's two options, isn't God is gracious enough to provide that. And man must, must do one or the other. For those who repent and trust in Christ, Jesus says, then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now the angel Gabriel told Daniel, the prophet, something very similar. He said, and many of those who sleep in the dust, of course this euphemism for death, sleep, sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. So the resurrection, everybody at that time is resurrected. You understand that, right? Okay, the dead in Christ, uh, though at a different time, and uh, the dead outside of Christ, everyone will rise, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who are wise, (laughs) those who choose wisely, the gospel, shall shine like the brightness of the firmament, and those who turn many to righteousness, those are the gospel preachers like stars forever and ever. Isn't that nice? Yeah. Both realities, as you see in the text, are eternal. Some will experience shame and everlasting contempt, and others will shine like the stars forever and ever. I vote for the latter. All right, so now that Jesus has interpreted the parable of the wheat and the tares, let's back up and look at the other parables, which no interpretation is given for. So back to verse 31. Another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field, which indeed is the least of all the seeds, but when it is grown, it is greater than the herbs and becomes a tree, so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. All right, Jesus doesn't explain it, so the goal is to keep it simple, okay? So the gist of it, just as a mustard seed, which is actually uh, a very large shrub, has a very small beginning, but grows into a shrub that dwarfs all the herbs of the garden, even to where birds are able to nest in its branches, so too, we would say, the Christian faith had humble beginnings, but will spread from Nazareth to the ends of the earth. Very basic, very clean. That's the gist of the parable. And I believe that's all that Jesus meant to communicate. Now, because of certain commentators, a, a particular interpretation of the birds has stuck in the minds of those who listen to these teachers. They believe that because the birds in the parable of the sower represented Satan, the birds here must also represent Satan or at least something very nefarious. Okay? They hold this position because they believe that all the details from one parable especially the parable of the sower, should then interpret all of the other ones. They should all be consistent in their own way. Okay, now I'm going to demonstrate how that's not okay. All right, are you ready? Okay, if everything is consistent from one parable to another, why then does the seed in the parable of the sower represent the gospel of the kingdom, but in the parable of the wheat and the tares, the seeds represent the sons of the kingdom? The message of the kingdom and the sons of the kingdom, are they different? Absolutely they are. Okay? So I don't believe that the birds are always bad unless they're in my cherry trees. Okay? And then they're always bad. I don't care if there's no cherries in that tree. I have PTSD about a swarm of starlings. See my Rainier cherries. They're special to me. Okay? And I can get I can get 15 gallons off my two trees, which equals a sore tummy, right? But when a swarm of a, I don't know, what are there, 10,000 of those birds, they can go in and destroy every cherry and not eat one of them. It's just, (laughs) in this parable though, understand the birds aren't good and they're not bad. Jesus is drawing our attention to the fact that the mustard tree, unlike all other herbs in the garden, is so big that even the birds can nest in it. They're not, they're doing anything evil, okay? They're just there. It's because of the size of the bush. So the point of the parable is this. The gospel will have humble beginnings. It will have a global impact, okay? The parable then, understand, is prophetic. Jesus knew in advance, even before the gospel went beyond the borders of Israel, that it would span the globe. And it has, amen? It has. By the way, the church in China right now is exploding, Exploding. Yeah. Even in the most unlikely places. So the birds have no meaning, really. But if you assign meaning to them, it just distracts from what Jesus was teaching. Remember, people often make parables say more than what Jesus meant. Next parable. Another parable he spoke to them. The kingdom of heaven is like leaven, which a woman took and hid in three measures of meal till it was all leavened. So just as leaven, just a little bit, okay, spreads throughout the dough, so too the gospel was spread throughout the world. Now, understand from our perspective, the parable of the mustard seed and the parable of uh, the leaven. Well, yeah, we see it. But understand that there's a couple hundred people who are the sons of the kingdom at this time. They're among a people group that is oppressed and under tyranny by the Romans. Just the thought of something coming out of the poor city of Nazareth and becoming The most radical thing the world has ever seen globally. From that time, this is a radical idea. Amen? We're looking in hindsight now. But they were looking, you understand, outside of the borders of Israel, everybody is a pagan. Everybody is an idol worship. Millions and millions and millions. When Paul took the gospel over the border of Israel, he was the only Christian. Imagine that. And then it just spread throughout the world tremendous. Now, when some interpreters come uh, to these two parables in particular, they say, well, here it is. Clearly, the gospel was spread throughout the world, penetrating every level of society until it dominates everything, meaning that the whole world will be Christianized. Now, I'll give these commentators an A for optimism, okay? But it's not what the parable is saying. It makes it say too much, and it doesn't agree with Jesus' clear teaching elsewhere, and the teaching of the apostles. Jesus has already said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. It's many versus few. Many go to destruction, few into life. One theologian argues that uh, this may not actually be true with all of the babies that we're aborting. It may balance that number out a little bit. Crazy, huh? During the days of great tribulation, he's not saying that, Je- by the way, Jesus is incorrect. He's just saying that something that we have to consider in this whole thing is the tragedy of abortion. During the days of great tribulation, Jesus says, and unless those days are shortened, no flesh would be saved but for the elect's sake, those days will shorten. The great tribulation occurs at a time when God's people are outnumbered, persecuted, and killed. And this all occurs just before the second coming. This doesn't agree with that idea of the parable. Jesus also said, I tell you that God will avenge his elect speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? Why would Jesus say such a thing if there wasn't going to be a serious diminishing of his people on the earth just before he comes. Faith on the earth will wane in the last days. It won't thrive. The Apostle Paul says that last days will be marked by perilous times where immorality and deception will prevail, 2 Timothy 3.1. Those who hold that uh, interpretation of the parable that the gospel will Christianize the world say that the world will become a better place so good uh, that it will basically be the kingdom, and then Jesus will return. Interesting. But if the end times is filled with peril, how does that happen if God's people are the majority? Scripture anticipates a great rebellion in the last days, not a global revival where God's people outnumber the unbelievers. Okay? The parable of the leaven and the mustard seed are not saying that the gospel will eventually Christianize the world, they're both talking about the gospel starting small okay, and being spread across the globe, permeating the world. And the gospel, of course, as we know, is in every corner of the globe. But its influence, though tremendous, is not the primary influencer in our world. Okay. Secularism is. And secularism is growing at a rapid pace, not just in the West, but globally. Okay, Some believe that if the world is not eventually... Christianized. It means the gospel failed. Okay. No, it means that humanity failed to respond to the gospel. The gospel has the capacity to save everyone. Amen? It is that powerful. Paul says it is the power of God unto salvation, but it's for everyone who believes. Okay. The gospel has no power to save among those who reject it. All right, now let's skip down to the parable of the hidden treasure And the pearl of great value. Verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Okay, it's two parallel parables. Again, uh, just expressing the great value of the kingdom. And this is the point. No matter what it costs you, it is worth it. It is worth it, okay? Simple truth. We should do everything that we can to become citizens of this kingdom. <clears throat> Jesus said, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our number one priority, the thing that we should sacrifice the most for, do all that we can to obtain, is the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Our greatest priority is securing the kingdom, living by its precepts, citizens. It's interesting. Through faith and repentance, we become citizens. Though we're in another kingdom, we become citizens of another kingdom. We're foreigners. Yeah. But what does it look like to walk as citizens of the kingdom? Well, Paul tells us what it is not, uh, by way of telling us what it is. Uh, He says that the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So righteousness, peace, and joy have nothing to do with our diet. Some of you listening to me. They certainly affect our quality of life, but they're not the ingredients for righteousness and godliness. Jesus said that it's not what goes into a man that defiles him, but it's what comes out of his mouth. That's what defiles a man. It's those things which proceed out of the mouth, which come from the heart, and they defile the man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. Matthew fifteen eleven, and verse 18 through 19. So in terms of the progression of the gospel in the life of someone, righteousness begins with faith and it advances through obedience to Christ as we walk as he did. No one is as loyal to the kingdom as Christ. So to walk as Christ is to walk in righteousness. Amen. One last parable. When do these parables end? Jesus was a great storyteller. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet that was cast into the sea and gathered some of every kind, which, when it was full, they drew to shore, and they sat down and gathered the good into vessels, but threw away or threw the bad away. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth, separate the wicked from among the just, and cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. What parable is this one parallel to? The wheat and the tares. Yeah, the wheat and the tares. The gospel of the kingdom is to be cast out into the world like a net into the sea. Some will respond in faith. Others will reject it. The believing and unbelieving, again, like in the other parable, will coexist on earth until the end of the age when the angels are dispatched and they will separate the wicked from the just. They will cast the wicked into the furnace of fire where they'll be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Again, the doctrine of judgment comes out. Last week, I talked about the problem with gospel preaching today. And I said that false motives are provided for people the doctrine of judgment is removed. Um, understand, you guys, the gospel of judgment, that's the teeth in the command to repent, isn't it? Okay, now that's not something that I invented in preaching. Uh, we're being instructed from the one that did. Okay, these parables of the kingdom, gospel of the kingdom, it's not all bark, is it? Jesus says, at the end of the age, I will dispatch my angels and they'll do exactly what I've told. Amen. Nothing of his words will fall to the ground. If people think that the gospel doesn't have bite, it's because they've knocked the teeth out of it. We should not do that. We should preach as our master did. This whole reality about the doctrine of judgment, this is meant to wake people up. The gospel has gone out, you guys, but the end draws near when all will give an account. People can balk at the judgment and say how unfair it is, but it won't change the reality of what is coming, of what will happen, what should be done without it. Allow evil to continue on its current trajectory. How, how depressing that is, okay? Or offer salvation to the world before God cuts it off with justice. That's what we're called to do. You know, more and more evil goes unchecked in this world. Less and less people are standing against it. Corruption is everywhere. It always has been. But I do not believe at the level that we're seeing it now, Self-interest contaminates everything. Immorality is being normalized by the most influential people and institutions in our world. What could possibly stand in evil's way but the righteous indignation of a just God? Judgment is an ugly reality, but it's a good and necessary one. And when God is finished, the scriptures say that righteousness and peace will fill the earth. Evil will be banished and sin can never exist again. I'm looking forward to that reality. Just as John said, come, Lord Jesus. All right, let's wrap it up. Jesus has given his parables to his disciples. He said to them, have you understood all these things? And they said to him, probably in a very sobering tone, yes, Lord, we get it. So Jesus concludes, he said to them, therefore, every scribe instructed concerning the kingdom of heaven is like a householder, that's a homeowner, who brings out of his treasure things new And, old. this is the hardest way to conclude something because there is a custom here, an ancient custom, that we have no knowledge of, okay? So um, this comparison between a trained scribe and to a a homeowner who brings out his treasure, uh, yeah. But we're going to try to grasp the gist of it, okay? Uh, It was perhaps uh, something that was done for large family gatherings where the patriarch would bring out, um, you know, uh, treasure that had been acquired for the family for generations and those things that were more recently required. Uh, this is a modern guess of an ancient custom. Okay? A lot of ancient customs, we, we have something in antiquity, some writing about it, somebody wrote, somebody said something. Uh, this is one of those that we, we do not. But I think we can grasp the gist of this. The only people at that time uh, currently being instructed in things regarding the, the kingdom were the disciples. He says, scribes instructed in the kingdom. It was just Jesus' disciples. Okay, remember, Jesus was revealing to them the mysteries of the kingdom. Mysteries being those things unknown in times past because God had concealed them, but currently through Christ is revealing them Okay, to the disciples, that is to those who had ears to hear. The scribe of that day, untrained in things pertaining to the kingdom, could only bring out things from the Old Testament because the mysteries of the kingdom had been hidden from him. But the disciples of Jesus could bring out the old and show how it relates to the new, how it would be fulfilled in the new era. The Old Testament you know, rightly anticipated you know, all things concerning the kingdom But if you're with us on Thursday night, you know that Isaiah doesn't pitch anything out there in chronological order, okay? So it is a bit jumbled in the prophets. And it's only through Christ that we can know how the things pertaining to the kingdom unravel, okay? The full manifestation of the kingdom will be preceded by the death, the resurrection of Christ, and the preaching of the gospel to the world, okay? And when that is done that will usher in the end of the age and the beginning of a new one, okay? Jesus gave the instruction of the gospel to the disciples with the responsibility of recording the scriptures and taking it to the ends of the world, both the old and the new, and how they come together in the revelation of God. And so we have this commission before us. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe, that is to obey all things that I have commanded you. And here it is, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And as soon as the age is terminated, Jesus will dispatch his angel. He will bring an end to all of the evil that's in this world. So the teeth in the gospel, it doesn't just make it urgent for the unrepentant to repent. It should make it urgent for us to take the old and the new to the world and bring in as many as we can. Amen? All right, let's not forget our commission. Go ahead and stand up. We'll pray.